This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. For anybody who was in yesterday, we're, we're sort of mixing it up a bit, and I'm now on this chair. <laughs> Much more exciting. Welcome, Neil Gaiman. Welcome, readers, to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I can't tell you how pleased I am to see all of you. And um, we're going to hopefully have a wild roller coaster of a conversation here, which um, eventually will turn into a Q&A. So I hope you all have questions. Please, please turn off your cell phones and other electronic noisy things. Um, I would also uh, like to say at the very beginning, before we all get so excited that we forget, um, for the signing line, uh, the book signing after the event, please hang on to your tickets. You will get a priority in the line above people who have not attended the event, and since there are quite a lot of you, and since everybody likes to have books signed by Neil, um, that way, if you, if you have proof that you were in here, you will um, not have to stand behind people who are not in here. So do that. Um, okay, I think we've pretty much handled the business, the business yeah. so now we can amuse ourselves. Um, yeah, where to start? We, we, Neil and I have sort of been having these conversations on various stages around the world, uh, starting in Sydney and continuing in Chicago, and heaven only knows where else we've been, so we... It, 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 it's sort of, me and Audrey, it's kind of like one giant interview of, <laughs> that's really a conversation that, that started in Sydney in 2006 and has been sort of lurching its way on ever since, and we snatch opportunities like this. So when she says, would you like to chat at the Edinburgh Book Festival? It's like, yes, good, we get to talk about what we think. And, um, and we're both busy and we're both zooming in peculiar directions. So whether we're in New Zealand or, or Edinburgh yep. or, or New Orleans, we, we sort of grab our little chances to talk. Yes. So, and then you have to just sit there, really. <laughs> no, no, we promise, we promise to be all inclusive and participatory, but not yet. <laughs> um, no, we have, to, we have to have our own questions. So I guess the place I wanted to start in, and this is um, kind of selfish because it's a train of thought I've been pondering. Um, I've been thinking about fairy tales and what makes something a fairy tale? What, what, is, what is a modern fairy tale and how would that be different from the old kind that we are used to? What's the difference between fairy tale and, say, a myth? You know, because in American Gods, you've of course gotten all these characters, these entities from myth that have uh, showed up in what we call a novel. And you know, so we've got all these names I, for I, things. I think I think myths decay into fairy tales. Ah, okay. Um, I mean, I mean, I think, I think in, in terms of the life cycle of a story. Um, Things begin as begin sacred. They begin as as huge, sacred, incredibly important stories that are passed on almost in confidence. Um, you know, you, you have to be initiated or whatever, and you are told the story. And then one step down from there, 
comes myth. And, and when things become myth, um, you're still getting stories that are in some way associated with the sacred, but they, they're now much more story-ish. So, you know, the secret, uh, you know, a, a, a secret important religious story then decays to the point where it's become something like Cupid and Psyche. And then Cupid and Psyche decays um, in the telling. And, and one day it's become Beauty and the Beast. And it's really the same story, but now any level of, of sacredness is gone and it's been replaced by magic. Um, and I think, that, I think there's a kind of weird life cycle there. And then if things decay further, and not everything decays and not everything goes like that, but I think, and I think if things continue to decay, they become jokes. Yeah. <laughs> and you actually run into this in, in folklore. You can, you can watch the progression of a story. And at the point where it just becomes a, a, a gag, then you go, ah, that, it, is, it, is, it has reached like the end of its life. you walked into a bar. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I don't think that in any way answers your first question, um, <laughs> which is what makes, what makes a fairy tale different? What, what, what are the salient things that you're looking for? Um, I think you can go through fairy tales and, and, and point to the things that they have in common. For example, there are no characters in a fairy tale in the sense that we understand characters. Um, you, you, you have individuals who move through the story and they are allowed one thing that distinguishes them from other people. Sometimes it's just luck. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's cleverness, sometimes it's having a, a faithful heart or whatever, but it, it's, it's taking something, um, some characteristic of being human. Normally, for, for the good characters, it's a good characteristic. Right. For the bad characters, it's a bad characteristic. This character eats people. That's what they do. And you don't really ask why um, in a story. You know, and, uh, when you get to fairy stories, you wind up... Motivation is incredibly simple, incredibly primal. Um, Hansel and Gretel. Let's do Hansel and Gretel. Okay. Um, you know, you're told at the beginning of Hansel and Gretel that there has been a war. Most people forget that, and it's not, and it's one of those things that gets elided. Um, but in the original Grimm's version of Hansel and Gretel, you're told there's been a war, and as a result of the war, there's now a famine. There is not enough food. And you get a woodcutter and his wife saying to each other, we do not have enough food for ourselves and our children. Either we all starve to death or we lose the children. And the woodcutter says, that's a really bad idea. But his wife is much more practical and as such will die by the end of the story. Um, and she says, you know, we, need, we, we do not have enough food. So they head out into the woods. And the woodcutter is giving the kids food in order to, um, I guess, help them survive once he abandons them. 
but Hansel and Gretel are smart, and they strew food behind them. Well, the first time, they strew pebbles behind them, which stay, and they find their way home. The second time, they strew bread or seeds behind them, and birds and animals come, and they eat them. So they are now lost in the woods, and they're hungry. And so they go to the house of, they find a house made out of edible things, wonderful edible things, um, which turns out to be a trap by a protein-crazed witch. She <laughs> obviously has, she's fine for carbohydrates because she can build lots and lots of, of you know, she, she uh, gingerbread. Um, so she's great for sugar but obviously is craving protein because her first action is to lock Hansel away and um, tries to fatten him up, which she succeeds in doing, although she is very short-sighted, probably protein deficiency, um, and is fooled by a bone that he puts through the mm -hmm. bars of the cage into thinking that he is not getting any fatter, but eventually decides to um, decides that, that she's going to cook him anyway. She heats up the oven, tells Gretel to check out whether it's hot enough. Gretel pretends to be stupid and says, how do you mean, what do you mean, get in the oven? I don't get, I'm really stupid. And the witch, now beyond crazed by the, the terrible lack of protein, <laughs> says, let me show you, climbs in the oven. The door is closed. Hansel and Gretel discover lots of treasure. You would think the witch might have actually gone and taken the treasure, bought food. <laughs> no. Nope. Um, and they go home. The, 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 the stepmother, their, no, she's their mother in this case. The mother has died in the meanwhile. And from lack of protein. Probably from See, lack of food or evil. See, if she had just eaten evil. the children to begin with, she would have been better off. Of course. When you say things like that, you suddenly move into that lovely sort of neo-Freudian, what do these <laughs> things really mean? Well, is it really about the mother eating the children? And you're going, no, nah, probably not, actually. It's just about. Um, but it, and, and what's interesting about that story is you don't know anything about Hansel and Gretel, save that Hansel was fattenable, <laughs> and, and Gretel was smart and didn't want to die. Yep. And um, nobody has what we consider depth, and nobody needs it, because what matters to you when you're listening to a fairy tale, when you're encountering it for the first time, um, is what happens next. What do these people do? How do they get out of that? Um, well, of course, the more realistic the character, the less we, the reader, move in and fill the character with ourselves. Exactly. It's like in comics, the more basic the drawing of the face, the more identifiable, and the more photographic the rendering, the more that is an individual separate from ourselves. So I think, in, especially in the fairy tales, it's good for there to be that kind of open character that we move into. Yeah, it, it would be wonderful. You know, as a kid, I would always envy the incredibly the smart and lucky characters. Um, I think, wouldn't it be cool to be like this character? And, but very often, they didn't do anything. They weren't really people. 
other than they would you know, get their hands on a magic lamp or whatever. Um, well, of course, the modern equivalent is video games. You know, you, you have an avatar and you don't want that person to be quite as full as one might make a character in a novel. Although my understanding, and I'm not a gamer, so forgive me if I'm getting it all wrong, but my understanding is that they're becoming more and more sophisticated, these avatars. And yet, if they go too far with that, the game will be less fulfilling because the choices will be, you know, we, we won't move into it the way we want to. There's definitely, um, but, but I, I can see a future in which games just become like real life only slightly better. So that, you know, you actually get the game and, and whereas, you know, yes, the object is to round up a bunch of friends and go off and seek for gold, you actually go, no, actually, I think I'm going to set up a really nice little hat makers here and just make hats and sell them to the people. That sounds like second life. Yes. Yeah. So back to Hensel and Gretel, I mean, the, the thing that satisfies in that story is that everybody does get their due. And I, th I think that's definitely part of a fairy tale, is, yeah. is you have to, well, actually, but, but what's really interesting is once the story gets going, everybody gets what they deserve. But you don't go into a fairy tale um, necessarily having any right to what you get. One of the things that I, I find peculiar and, and deeply sexist about um, fairy tales, and it really is, if you sit and read a bunch of them, um, Women in fairy tales who are going to be heroes, particularly girls, they get through a story by being clever and noble and loving and patient and amazing litanies of, of, of you know, they sit there put under weird curses where if they say one word for 10 years, their brothers will be swans forever or whatever, and they, and they go through hell. And they, or they go through, they have evil you know, incestuous fathers after them and they have to flee to another land and go through hell. And, and you kind of feel mostly that they, they absolutely get what they get because they are good, noble, and they deserve the end of their stories. Um, men don't. Men, uh, you know, there was a miller and he died and he left his oldest two sons, the mill and the house, and the youngest one got the cat. <laughs> and you're off. <laughs> is he any smarter than anybody else? No. Is he nicer than anyone else? No. He got the cat. He happened to be the youngest. He got the cat. And you're off. Um, the, the, this is fun. Um, <laughs> the, the, the little tailor who kills seven flies at one stroke and is so proud of himself that he makes himself a sash saying seven at one blow. And people think that he killed seven men. So he suddenly gets hired to kill giants and things and goes through the rest of the story. He didn't get into that story because he was smart. He went into that story because he killed seven flies and thought it was cool enough to have made himself a sash. Um, men, actually, you know, you're always very proud of them for getting to the end of a story. <laughs> There aren't any stories which, that I can think of anyway in which male heroes are 
exhibit the, the, the amazing nobility. See, that's, that that's what we do. should work on, some, some stories where we flip those roles, you know, and, and the men have to be, you know, noble and patient and all that. Watching, watching male characters be patient in stories is, is interesting to me. Yeah, they, um, male characters in stories sort of always start by going, oh, I am very patient. Look at me being patient. I'm the most patient person in this story. Right, what time's lunch? <laughs> they, yes. they kind of do. I mean, you know, the, the most patient, even, even the, kind of the characters in fairy stories, male ones being patient. Well, the like nearest I can, I can come to it was the ones who, who go to dark houses that are haunted at night that nobody's ever slept in. And, you know, they'll, they'll sit there by the fire not doing anything, and then the first night they're there, weird stuff is going to come down the chimney and assemble itself into a skeleton and play cards with them or whatever. Cause well, that's because the reader's the not very patient, and we, we have it, to get the story going. If it was a girl, won't. she'd be there for at least a week. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. Well, or, you, or they just go for 10 years. She went up <laughs> Eating nothing but cheese. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh dear. So, Fast forwarding to your own work, um, yep. some of your work does, for me, have that quality of the fairy story. I'm thinking in particular of Coraline, mm -hmm. where she lives in ordinary life and she lives in extraordinary life, and they're very thinly separated. I mean, they're just a bricked up doorway away from each other. And one of the things I particularly loved about that story was the sense of the parallel worlds being so close. You know, she can clearly discern one from the other, but she also has the sense that it's just next door. And the thing that for me reminds me in that particular story of, of the fairy tale is that there is this sense that she's, she's learning. She, she has a lesson to learn. There's something she needs to find out about herself and her relationship to her family. Fortunately, we, the reader, don't sit around going, oh, she's learning a lesson. We're just thinking, oh, that's amazing with the button eyes and all that. But there, there is kind of the dynamic in, for me in that story, particularly because it's about her relationship with parents, and that seems to always be a concern in the fairy tales. You know, what's interesting is I, d I don't see that story as being a fairy tale except insofar as the other mother mm -hmm. is absolutely a fairy tale creature. Right. Um, and one reason why you know she's a fairy tale creature is there is no explanation for her. Um, science fiction readers are sometimes frustrated with Coraline. And they come and they explain to me that I should have had the origin story and explain what dimension the other mother came from and why and what happened to her. And you're going, no, wrong kind of story. This is, I, I, you don't have to know that. All you have to know is that she's been doing this for a very long time and she's not very nice. <laughs> and, and that, I think, is, is pure fairy tale. Um, there, was, there was a line that I wrote in a short story um, called Troll Bridge, a very long time ago, where I, I say that you know, something very scary and kind of fairy tale happens to a kid. I basically put a kid um, or, or, or a man through the course of his life, through the, the Three Billy Goats Gruff right. story with the troll under the bridge. And he meets the troll when he's um, about seven years old. 
and it says, I'm going to eat your life. And he says, no, 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 but, but I'm not. Look at me. I'm nothing. Uh, but I'll come back. And there's a line in, in that where I say it's actually good for children to meet the elements of a fairy tale. They're very well prepared for them. And um, you know, in that, in that story, I played with and screwed with the structure of fairy tale. And I did it again, actually, think about it, in, in Snow Glass Apples, where I got to retell the story of Snow White mm -hmm. from the stepmother's point of view, which allows you um, to understand that, that it wasn't that she was an evil stepmother. She just never went far enough. And, and that fascinated me. But in each of those cases, you're trying to bring character. Mm -hmm. to a fairy story, and you're trying to bring logic to it, and then you watch it warp. Um, in the case of, of Snow Glass Apples, for any of you who haven't read it, um, it that began with me going, um, I, I was reading Neil Phillips's book of English folktales. It's a wonderful book, and it included a retelling of um, a story that was very Snow White-ish. It was obviously a, a, a variant on Snow White. And I'm reading this, and I'm reading the story of Snow White for what was probably the thousandth time in my life. And for the first time ever, I started actually looking at it logically. And I thought, you know, what kind of person on his horse looks down and says, that dead girl in that coffin is beautiful. I'm taking her back to my castle. <laughs> and then, having thought that, I thought, and for that matter, what kind of person has lips as red as blood, skin as white as snow, hair as black as coal, and gets to lie in a coffin for six months? and then get up and say, I'm feeling a lot better. <laughs> and putting those two things together, I suddenly had a vampire Snow White and a necrophiliac prince <laughs> and, and this poor queen desperately trying to cope. And, and I got to tell the entire story, uh, pretty much exactly as written, only you're rooting for the queen. Um, much too much fun. Yeah. Well. It's, in a way, we're all spoiled for choice now. There's so much myth and fairy tale and Bible stories. I mean, there's so much commonly held stories and so many characters that we now all hold as one culture. And even, you know, we've started to mix and match the cultures and we can have these kind of dust-ups between wildly separated times and places and all their myths. So I'm, I'm wondering, when you're, when you're thinking about the next thing that you're going to write, how, how you select from the vast troves of things that are available to you as a writer? I, you know, the funny thing is, I very, very rarely, if ever, actually sit and go, what am I selecting from? Because um, that's not really the way that my head works. What I, what I tend to do, um, is have something in my head that I can't get out of it, and then write in order to understand it. 
Um, and it can be anything. It can be, um, it can be an image. American Gods began with just this idea of two people on a plane. And I remember I was dozing off and thinking, there's a man on a plane, and he, he's been shuffled through airports and bounced from plane to plane. His plane's been canceled, and now he's, he gets into the plane, and he has that thing where you go to the back of the plane, and there's somebody sitting in your chair, and they need to take off, so they just throw you in the front, and you're now you're sat at the front, and you sit down, and the guy in the seat next to you turns to you, addresses you by name, and says, you're late. I thought, that's cool. I have no idea where that goes. I have no idea who these people are. I don't know anything more than that, but I know that. And then, and I knew that. I knew that was a real thing. And so at that point, it was like a snowball rolling down a hill. It just gathered things to it. And, when I, and sometimes I go, ah, oh, that idea for, for that other thing, that's part of this, and this is part of that. And then, yeah. and then one day I was in Iceland and it all came together. And I thought, ah, it's this thing. And, and I don't know what it's called, but I'll write American Gods on the letter to my agent and my editor just to let them know that it has some kind of title and I'll come up with a better one. <laughs> so that was, that was where that began. Um, and a lot of the time you're wrong, too. I, I, I started um, a short story near the beginning of the year. And it was going to be about 3,000 words. And I had this plot, and I, I knew how it was going to go. I, I knew the thing of it. I knew the shape of it. And at the point where it hit page 50, I called the editor who was waiting for it and told him that he was never going to get it because I didn't know what it was, but I was up to page 50, and it was still going. Um, and it's still going now. And it may well be a sort of surprise book that nobody was expecting, or it may be something else. But I'm, I'm writing it right now just to find out what happens and who these people are and what they're doing in my story. <laughs> I mean, have you ever had a thing that totally turned out the way you thought it would? Because that seems not like you, in a way. Um, Caroline turned out exactly like I thought it would, except that I thought it was going to be 3,000 words long, and it was 30,000 words. Oh, that. So well. apart from, so, but, but it was exactly the story that I thought I was telling. Um, it's a really hard one. There may be a couple of short stories, very, very short, short stories. <laughs> The kind where you, you, you really do have the entire thing in your head. I, I did one for The Guardian newspaper um, this week. I was asked for a 247-word short story. I read that. And that was, um, and that was just a story that had been sitting in my head for ages. And I'd never quite got around to writing it because it just seemed so incredibly short. So when they said, 247 word shots. So I thought, ah, I'll do that thing. And I did that story. And that was exactly what it was meant to be. Um, but normally, no. Norm normally, the thing that keeps me writing 
yeah. is the surprise, normally the thing that I enjoy. Yeah, because every time I've ever heard you talk about your process, you seem very much, more, more than many, to be able to hold yourself open to the possibilities of things that would like to join the story, which, uh, which I think counts for the experience of reading your work, which is that one is in a state of frequent surprise, which I always enjoy myself. Yeah, I think that um, there are, there are I, I think a lot of that honestly comes from the decade that I spent writing comics. And more than writing comics, writing monthly comics. Where, um, it, it, which is kind of similar in some ways to writing TV. Oh, sure, you're, the episode. You're getting, it's, it's absolutely episodic. You can't go back and fix things. You just have to go forward. And you have to be absolutely open to cool stuff. You have to be open to the stuff where um, you suddenly go, this character's really cool. I'm bringing them back. And it's not that you don't have a, a plot. You do. But you have a huge, giant, overarching plot, which is really the equivalent of saying, I am going to hitchhike from Edinburgh to London. And I'm going to go this way, and this is, you know, and with any luck, this is where I will be tomorrow night. And, um, and then, you know, who picks you up and what happens, that's, yeah. that, that happens on the way. And, and I, I enjoyed that process, so I think I was much more willing to bring it with me. Yeah, well, you know, the next normal. obvious question, of course, is could you tell us a little bit about what it was like to write for Doctor Who? Why is that obvious, Audrey? Well, you just mentioned Because I, I mentioned television. Okay, and, yes. And, uh, you know, the idea of having, having a destination and a starting point, which one surely must when one is writing for such a series. So, um, March 2007, I get an email from Stephen Moffat saying, who I'd never met. Um, saying, you've said some really nice things about me um, on your blog. Glad you like the episodes. If you're when you're next in London, let's have a glass of wine. And I wrote back and I said, actually, I'm going to be in London next week. And he said, great, let's get together. And I had heard rumors from an incredibly reliable source that Stephen Moffat was going to be taking over Doctor Who when Russell Davis left. But I'd also been told that this was absolutely on the level of a state secret. <laughs> so we're sitting there having, having lunch, having dinner, uh, at a place called Bar Shoe and, uh, in London. And we're having the kind of conversation where I'm saying, you know, of course, hypothetically <laughs> speaking, I'd love it if somebody asked me to write an episode of Doctor Who. And he's going, ah, you know, hypothetically speaking, if I were in a place where I could actually offer you an episode, obviously. <laughs> and then somewhere in there, he said a very rude and Scottish word and said, oh, rude and Scottish word, it. <laughs> it was fuck. Um, <laughs> and he said, you know I'm taking over Doctor Who. I know that you know that I'm taking over <laughs> Doctor Who. Let's just cut all this out. And uh, do you want to write an episode? I said, yes. 
And uh, the wonderful thing was that that was early enough that I had about a month or two and thought of different things, and then I came up with my, my Doctor Who story idea. And I actually wound up coming up the whole idea backwards. Everybody goes, ah, that's so brilliant. The TARDIS becomes a person for an episode. That must have been the thing that got you so excited. And I say, no. That wasn't actually the way that it was plotted. The way that I plotted it was to go, I want to go deeper into the TARDIS. I want to, I want to, it would be really cool to have the Doctor pursued into the TARDIS by something dangerous. And I thought, but that's not really a plot because he'd know all of the nooks and crannies and he'd know all the secrets, so it's not really, it's not fair. But it'd be really cool to have the, the companion either pursued into the TARDIS. What would make it even cooler is if instead of having the TARDIS as the most friendly, safe place in the world, it's being possessed by something evil. So you're actually, you're in the TARDIS and you're stuck there and it hates you. That's really fun. But hang on, what do I do with the mind of the TARDIS while it's being possessed by something evil? Oh, I'll put it into somebody. Of course. So that was the way that I, I plotted it. And then I phoned and told Stephen Moffat my plot idea. And he went, TARDIS girl. <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I suppose that's an element of the story. But obviously, you know, it's being hunted through. TARDIS girl, yes. So. Um, so I found myself with a commission to write an episode of Doctor Who. And I got to plot it far enough in advance that I, I could, um, that all sorts of cool things could happen. For example, we could keep the David Tennant, Christopher Eccleston TARDIS set up ah. until I needed it. Great, yeah. Which they did. For a year and a half, they lied to everyone <laughs> who came onto the set about, oh, what's, what's that? Is that actually the original? Said, yeah, it's cheaper. We're having it demolished. We're, we're leaving it there. <laughs> it's going to be going off to some museum, and until they need it, they're just leaving it here. Oh. It's lies. Um, we got to do the Blue Peter, having a kid design the junkyard TARDIS console, because that was part of the plot originally. So they said, came to me and said, could we have a kid design this? And I said, yes, that'd be brilliant. So we did. Um, the, um, the hardest thing with my episode was that it bounced from Matt Smith's first season to Matt Smith's second season. It was originally meant to be oh, episode 11. I see. It would have been in the place that the lodger was in. Okay. And, um, and when they got to that block of, of episodes, which was the one with Amy's Choice and The Lodger, they were out of money. And they came to me and they said, we cannot make this episode for the money we have left. Not unless we're going to set it in a flat in Cardiff. <laughs> and don't think we haven't tried to figure out how we could do that. Um, they said, but we're going to bounce you to early in the next season. Um, but bouncing me to early in the next season meant that I had one huge thing different, which is I now had Rory. Mm -hmm. 
which I loved. Having Rory gave me some of the best lines in the story. Um, you know, the one where he says he's left the doctor on his own and he says, well, he'll, he'll be fine. He's a time lord. And Amy says, it's just what they're called. It doesn't mean he knows what he's doing. <laughs> um, you know, you couldn't have lines like that. And, yeah. and it also changed the nature of what happened in, in the TARDIS. Instead of having, you know, this horrible game of hide and seek with, with Neville coming after her, it was much more the TARDIS playing mind games with the two of them and yeah. everybody, including me, going, just hold hands. Oh, you didn't hold hands. Um, but it, it was, it was, so that really was the Doctor Who thing for me. And, and I loved doing it. I, I loved everything about it. Um, I, I got to write my episode. I got, they, they shot the episode that I wrote. Um, all of the suggestions that came in from the creative team were great. That sounds heavenly, the whole you know, thing. It, was, it yeah. was magic, and I'd never had an experience like that on doing TV before. Um, I'd enjoyed my episode of Babylon 5. That was fun. But I didn't feel like they'd taken the episode I gave them and made anything that was better than what I gave them. Yeah. Um, well, I just felt rare, like they'd done a nice yeah. sort of solid job. Whereas with, with The Doctor's Wife, I actually felt like it was better than the script. And that made me really, really happy. Um, but it wasn't actually called The Doctor's Wife when I handed them a script. It was oh. called Bigger on the Inside. And Stephen Moffat got in touch and he said, look, he said, could we call it The Doctor's Wife? And I said, you mean after the, 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 the famous fake um, title? Back in, back in the 80s, um, the title The Doctor's Wife was actually put up on the whiteboard in the BBC offices to try and catch a, a mole who was leaking Doctor Who details. Um, and, and I said, no, I'm not sure. I said, come on, surely you're doing yourself out of the opportunity to do a bunch of other plots if you do that. And I listed off a dozen plot ideas, all of which could legitimately be called The Doctor's Wife and would have a character in it who was, in some ways, The Doctor's Wife. And Stephen Moffat wrote back and he said, well, yeah, he said, all of those are true, except, except none of those actually does The Doctor they're all not, they're all in some ways cheats. Mm -hmm. He said, this one, which is going to, if, if we did it, it would appear to be a cheat, but it's actually completely honest. And I thought about it, I thought, actually, he's right. When all of the, any of anybody else is gone, it's still going to be a boy in his box off to, right. off to see the universe. Yeah. And I said, yeah, go for this. Beautiful. Well, let's have some questions. Now, there are microphones roaming the earth. And if you <laughs> put wild feral <laughs> microphones. And if you put your hands Dangerous up microphones. <laughs> okay, well, somebody back here has bravely put his hand up, and so you shall have your microphone. Lovely idea. In days of old, microphones roamed the uh, <laughs> sure. looking for people to interview. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, DC Comics have taken it upon themselves to, to relaunch their entire story universe. And one of the big ideas that they're taking from their, their history is to take the old Vertigo books and make them very much part of this new revamp, rewritten universe. Now, of course, I think I'd agree 
that it's a great idea that the you know the Sandman element of the vertical history is is done and over. No one else should write a new uh, Sandman book. But the, the three iconic elements of vertical, I would say, were Sandman, Swamp Thing, Animal Man. The other the other two are being woven back into this DC universe now. My spinning off from that, the question was: you, when you wrote Sandman, you you, you succeeded it from the basic ideas of the DC universe. It was original character, which became this new character. Do you feel that the most successful parts were the ones which, which sort of sped away from the DC elements and were taking cues from like the Bible and Greek myths? Or do you think that the DC elements were an integral part of it and a successful part? You know, because the first volume is basically a lot of DC continuity, but then you spin off into myth and talking about Lucifer and, and Greeks, whatnot. So it's basically, what are your thoughts of how you have to, to stop how, asking how your question now. Is, yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's 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 the end of it, though. How much of success was Sandman as being part of the DC? How much of it as you know a separate thing? I'd say it was thirty-four <laughs> percent DC Comics characters. And um, the, the the truth is, um, you know, Sandman definitely grew out of the DC, I, I used the DC Comics continuity that was available to me when I began, because that was part of the fun. Um, having said that, I was absolutely aware that if DC Comics said no to the proposal, I could, I could get out a uh, head back into the word processor and do a proposal for Marvel Comics the following day <laughs> called Nightmare using the old uh, Doctor Strange character, and it would be pretty much the same thing. Um, didn't want to, because I really liked the idea of creating my own, own thing. But um, it, it definitely grew out of the DC Comics elements. And I loved using them. And some of the ones that proved the most popular over the years, things like Cain and Abel, um, were, were absolutely borrowed. Destiny was originally a DC Comics character, created by Marv Wolfman and Bernie Wrightson. Um, so it, it, was, it was absolutely intrinsic to what I was doing. Um, and, and bear in mind, of course, that Sandman only became a Vertigo comic with episode 42, episode, issue, 42. Um, so, and they still let me you know, bring Superman and Batman in for the, for the wake and stuff. There's, there's, DC Comics elements all the way through. Okay, all the way over here, the lady with the very interesting bracelet. <laughs> I've just got a really simple question. Well, maybe you said, um, why didn't Rory and Amy hold hands? <laughs> you know, you would think they would have figured that one out. I thought they should have figured it out. I got to do the, um, the audio commentary for that Doctor Who episode uh, a few weeks ago, and it was really fun sitting in a little studio on Wardour Street on my own, doing the commentary. And at that point, I keep going, hold hands, hold hands, and they didn't. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, I'll make you run all the way across. Um, you right there at the end, yes, you. You're looking at me, yes, you. Ah, there we go. Hello. Um, are you ever disappointed? 
because you do a lot of collaborations, and I know you can't, can't really answer this very truthfully, but are you ever disappointed <laughs> with the final result of something that you've written, and maybe it's been illustrated? I'm not disappointed, but... Yeah, um, no, that's a perfectly fair question, and yes, sometimes I am. Um, not a lot, because in comics particularly, I tend to feel that if I've not got what I asked for in some ways, then it's probably my fault. And um, I should have been clearer. And, I'm, and, I, and I was pretty much alone in the, 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 the group of people who write comics in that I wouldn't write a comic unless I knew who was drawing it. Because if you know who's drawing something, then you write for that person, you write for their strengths, you avoid their weaknesses, and it makes you look good, which is something that I learned from Alan Moore, who is very wise. And um, so from that perspective, I, I, you know, when something was less successful than I'd hoped, I assumed it was my fault. Um, there were definitely places, the, the hardest one I think for me is in terms of collaborations that just really didn't work um, was probably the Neverwhere TV series where I had all of this stuff in mind and all of this stuff that I put in the script and then it simply wouldn't get onto the screen or it wouldn't get onto the screen in the way that I'd written it. Um, or I'd describe what people were wearing and they wouldn't be wearing that. And I'd go, but why aren't they wearing that? That was what they're wearing. Um, and, and it felt as silly to me as having, you know, as it would have done if I described the Sandman. Um, you know, described Morpheus on his first appearance, and then the artist had drawn him wearing, you know, a bright green leather jacket and a baseball cap. <laughs> it, it would have just been wrong. And, and that was, things like that happened all the way through Neverwhere. Um, and uh, so, yeah, th you're not always thrilled with the collaboration process, and you're not always thrilled. Um, I'm, uh, to be honest, now I'm at the point where if something, particularly with the screen, if something makes it to the screen and I'm really happy with it, I'm absolutely thrilled. You know, so I don't necessarily expect that it's going to work, but it, that also doesn't mean I'm going to give up and, and take my toys and go home. Because sometimes you'll write something like the Doctor Who episode and, and you know, it'll, it'll work. Uh, let's see. Um, how about the gentleman in the light-colored shirt way in the back? You, yes. See, if I knew all your names, I could just call on you by name like a giant classroom of students, but. Thanks. Um, I hope this isn't a weird admission, but I'm quite nostalgic about being scared when I was, when I was a, a kid, reading things. Um, so I think it's quite good, actually, to scare children, as long as, <laughs> as, long as ultimately everything turns out OK. Um, but do you ever have to rein yourself in? I mean, do you ever think really dark thoughts and think, yeah, that's cool, but I probably shouldn't use that right now? Um, yeah, uh, occasionally. Um, in, in Coraline, I. I actually decided not to write a chapter because it was going to be too scary, which was the one where um, she's pursued around the cellar by the thing that used to be the other father. And when I handed the book in to my, my editor, uh, Sarah Adedna at, at Bloomsbury, 
she said, what happens to the other father? And I said, ah, I didn't write that because I thought it was going to be too scary. And she said, write it. <laughs> and so I did, um, which taught me a lesson because nobody's ever come to me and said that chapter was too scary. They've said the book was too scary, but nobody ever said that bit was too scary. Um, occasionally, I will, I'll have my doubts, but I'll never, but I haven't censored myself yet. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm the, the thing that I'm currently writing, the thing that I was talking about earlier, which I thought was a very short story and then it has kept growing, um, has, it, I think it's a children's story, but there's stuff in it that I wouldn't have thought, if you'd asked me to, for elements that I thought were appropriate for a children's story, um, you know, an adult committing suicide is absolutely, which happens very, very early in the book, um, is not one of those things that I would have actually put in there, um, except that's in the story. And so I'm just going with it. And my, my assumption is that if people really have a problem with it, we'll publish it as adult fiction. But I, I don't really try and rein myself in. Um, I also, I figure that kids are smart, kids are resilient, kids have a much better sense of reality and fantasy than many adults. Adults have, have uh, you know, I, I have watched a kid at a signing line um, just tell me a, a, a couple of a mother and a kid in a signing line were explaining to me how when she got freaked out during Coraline, it was the kid who patted her on the leg and said, don't worry, mum, it's only a story. <laughs> and, okay, I, we have time for one more. And then um, you right there with, yes, you. Um, you talked a bit about your writing process, how it's sort of very organic. I was wondering how that works out when you're doing things like sequels. I know that you've done the novella and an anti-boys as sort of sequels to American Gods, and I heard rumors that you're working on more. And I was wondering how that works out with the sort of the very sort of organic way you seem to write things. Well, Anansi Boys definitely isn't a sequel to American Gods. It kind of gets marketed as, as one. It would be much more accurate to say that when I wrote American Gods, I borrowed a character from a book that I hadn't written yet <laughs> for it. So Mr. Nancy, I just went and borrowed him from this book that I hadn't yet written. Um, but The Monarch of the Glen is definitely a, a sequel. Um, there are meant to be another two stories of what Shadow does in the UK before he goes back to America. Um, but I've, I've started in a very, very lazy way, writing something that may turn into the next American Gods novel. Right now, it, it's sort of, right now it's accreting things. You know, it, it's like space debris. There, there comes a point at which it's no longer space debris, it's now a small asteroid. And right now there's just a mass of floating space debris. And um, at the point where it becomes an asteroid, I'll probably begin it. In the meantime, I, I have a tendency to pull out notebooks and write scenes and write passages. And I'm pretty sure that I know what Shadow's doing as it begins. 
and I know that Zoria Polunochnaya is, is going to be out on her own through a lot of this story. And I know that we're going to meet the new gods a lot more than we ever did before. Um, and I know that it will have mentalism running through it in the same way that the first book had coin magic running through it. And uh, there's all sorts of things that I know. It will have Bigfoot in it. Um, but it's not quite at the point yet where I would confidently um, say, right, I'm going off for six months, and when I see you all, I should have half a book. I'm, I'm still at the point of accumulating. And um, having said that, there's things about the sequel that I knew, and there's things, you know, I've known the title of it since um, I wrote American Gods, and I've known the title of the big American Gods book that will come after that if I live long enough since I wrote American Gods. And there are, there are lots of places in American Gods where if I write the sequel, and if I write the one after that, and you go back and read American Gods again, you'll go, oh my god, did he know that then? And it will be like, yeah, yeah, I knew that then. <laughs> uh, and those things are incredibly fun to do, those ones, you know. I, w I was talking to Armistead Mopan um, last year, and he was, he was incredibly thrilled that in the new uh, Tales of the City book, Marianne in Autumn, he actually wrapped up a plot thread that he'd been running through the books for the best part of the last 30 years. And you know, he'd been sort of cackling to himself at night because he knew that thing was there and nobody else did. Well, thank you. We're going to move this party over to the signing tent. As I said, please get hold of your little pieces of paper and please let us leave first. <laughs> thank you so much. And Neil, thank you. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.